1: Thanks for being on the show, Ian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Ian is a partner at Hard Money Bankers. He's been there since 2012. He's responsible for underwriting all of the loans in the eastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware markets as part of his role at Hard Money Bankers. Built and sold Atlas Property Management between 2010 and 2014. So, Ian, thank you again for your time and being on the show. Give the listeners a little more about who you are and what you do in real estate right now, and then let's let's dive into what we discussed. I'm on, and I'm going to leave it at that, and then we're going to dive in.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, so the bio is accurate. You know, I came out of school years ago and read Rich Dad Poor Dad's Robert Kiyosaki book and. Rich dad, poor dad. Sorry, and it was you know I read that excerpt about wholesaling a deal that he did in Arizona for like forty grand or something. I thought, what is this? How do I do this? You know, it was a lot of money back then, and I come out of school. I didn't have any money, so entering in the wholesaling way is a good way for entry into a business. I also think it's highly underestimated on how much money you can still make in that business. But nonetheless, that's how I came out in two thousand eight when the market was crashing. Decided this is a good thing to do, and ended up building a pretty pretty large wholesaling company and. Philadelphia. So I really learned how to become an investor at that point because I could learn how to source a deal to bring it to real buyers. Cause right now we're kind of in a marketplace where like we're closer to a top than a bottom, right? So you have a lot of people that will overpay, and that's not really you don't really have your huge sharks buying properties right now. So I had to learn how to sell the sharks back then and they'll come back out again and you know when this thing tops out. But so that was kind of how I cut my teeth initially in the business. And then from there I grew a property management company that as i look back on you know it sounds easy on the surface but easily the hardest part about real estate in general is property management done right just the processes and systems and things you have to put in place to do that properly but yeah and some of the most important you, Some of the most, that's right so i didn't know what i didn't know back then i started the company we grew it really made a very polished company that we ended up selling to a company in center city and i was like what am i going to do now and you know we had decided that i had two silent partners in the management company already and said, let's. they were deploying a lot of capital in the Maryland area. So we decided, hey, let's, you know, I understand how to underwrite. I understand how the investment area where I'm located. Let's deploy capital in, in my market. So brought a bunch of money up here. And that's kind of been the story. I've just been deploying a lot of capital on the private front for a while now.
1: Nice. You have some skills though. Now, I mean, you're, you're analyzing lots of projects and, you know, just our conversation before we started recording, you know, you mentioned like, like helping us think like a lender and what that should look like and, you know, analyzing a project, you know, how, how a lender would analyze it. And, and, and so we can understand what that should look like. So I'd love for us to dive into that and and break that down a little bit. And so, you know, help us to get started though, or, or maybe where, you know, most people make their mistakes in, in doing this, but yeah, get us started.
0: Yeah, so without a doubt, I always say don't overthink it, right? Like if you people send me spreadsheets and and stuff and I'm like if you're putting a lot of times it's way they're overcomplicating a good deal. So, it's got to just work on, on a few fronts typically. So, I'm, let's just take like an easy example of like a single family flip or something, an investment property that might be a single family flip or even like a small piece of commercial that's, you know, buy it fix it, renovate it, and then lease it out, is that you've got to get, you make your money when you buy. I know that's the oldest saying in this game, but it's the real answer. It it breeds you either room for error or profit. But if you buy too high, you have no room for error and you'll make no profit. And a lot of people lose before they even get to that point because they're buying it too high. They don't understand really what a project or a deal looks like in their market and really where they should be buying, you know, a property at 20 or 30 cents on the ARV dollar versus, you know, 60 or 70 cents in the dollar that I see a lot of times because they don't know how to analyze a property to begin with. And that's where a lot of people go wrong, I think. So, from a simple numbers perspective or simple like outlook, you've got to buy deep enough. You've got to then make sure your construction or renovation costs, if there are any, which almost all the time there are, to bring that property up to value are accurate. A lot of times people like to pay too much, put too little in, and then between those two things, there's no profit there. So, I, I see that. And that's really like, if you're going to think like a true private lender, that is what the focus should be is the asset, where you're buying it, how much you're putting into it, and what's that potential value. Everything in between in terms of like credit, tax returns, all that other stuff. If you're using that, you're really not a you know, a true private lender in what you're doing and and you don't really know what the asset's worth. You're trying to actually underwrite the borrower to offset your risk.
1: So, you know, just you know, like don't overcomplicate it, don't overthink it. It's hard, right? I mean, it's hard not to, you know, want to just analyze it to death and, and just, you know, make it this big ordeal. But I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit on, you know, thinking about, you know, getting a property cheaper or maybe the actual steps of a way that you're going to underwrite something to know that we're not overpaying it because it is when you buy. I mean, the money's made then and making sure you're not overpaying. And so, you know, what are some tips or, or things that you use then to make sure you're not overpaying?
0: So, I'd love to tell you there's a shortcut to this, but there's not. It's screen time. It's so I'm always in front of my local MLS systems. MLS is your multiple listing services. You can't really do this with the free sites out there. I'm not going to name any because, you know, but you really have to have the data and insight into your local MLS systems. And then it's just constantly, you know, nowadays with technology, you have a map view of just like Google Maps or whatever. When you bring it up, you know, you can see exactly where the house is or do the street view. You know, you can do that with you know, sales data, square footage data, all that kind of stuff. Very quickly, you can identify when, you know, the deal comes in, it may or may not be in a good range just based on maybe your filtering criteria of however you're answering it. But let's say it's something worth looking at. You should be able to bring that up in your MLS system and know within a minute that, hey, there's something here. Maybe it's not exactly at the right price right now, but this is worth fishing. And then from there, you can basically just in a map view, determine extremely quickly You know, is this area hot? Are properties selling at the right price? Are these only investor pickups? You know, is there something else here like this? Like sometimes I'll see with like huge commercial, I'll see like a $10 million commercial deal that on paper on the spreadsheet looks fantastic. And maybe if I was underwriting it based on, you know, a lease, like a a rent roll, maybe this works. But you know, that type of underwriting to me is really scary because if I don't have a comparable sale that I can pull up in a map right away and look at, you know, and I have to deal with a rent roll it really is saying okay the guy operating this thing is really the business owner of this building and because of that however he decides to you know isn't whatever type of operator he is is really what i'm investing in it's not all the leases in the building and they certainly help obviously to have rent in place but a bad manager or a bad owner operating wise can destroy the inside of a leased building Quickly. So, what I have to do then is say, as an underwriter or somebody who's looking at a project, okay, what's my potential out value? Well, I don't have something I can pull up on a map and go, this is the value. Then I'm just speculating. And I don't like to speculate as a lender. Like, that's not what I do. I, I look at the data and go, this is what I have. So, it's very important for me or somebody that they should be able to pull up, look at recent sales, you know, within the last year, call it, of very similar property types. And if they don't have a very comforting, easy, obvious answer right then and there, they're probably. In the speculative zone, which they want to remove themselves from, if they're you know betting their own money on a deal. So,
1: so where are you going to find those recent sales?
0: I find them in my MLSs. So I'll pull, I'll go into my MLS, and I go, okay, you know, there's a search criteria it's pretty easy, and you know, last zero to 360 days, and then I'll put a geographic bubble that I'm comfortable with. Typically, it's a lot smaller than people think it is. Like you can't go most regions, you can't go miles outside of where you are. You're, you're usually within one tenth of a mile of where you're trying to buy to determine where those other properties are. So I'm gonna go in my MLS and pull a a geographic and time, you know, area that's all similar. And then look for houses or commercial buildings or whatever that I'm looking at that are very similar. And if I don't have any, I don't have The value I'm putting on it is guessing is what that is. and I don't feel comfortable guessing.
1: I couldn't agree more. You can't guess in this game, mm-hmm. that's for sure. And so, can you share where you're getting some some of this data? Because the data is so important, right? And then we're going to make our best decision based on this data. But where I know a lot of people are saying, "Well, where do you know? Where do you find the best data?"
0: So the data I have is is all just from our multiple listing services. Fortunately, I'm in a market that has, like, from what I can see or have seen, an exceptional multiple listing service that I've been. It's very user friendly. When I say that compared to the other ones I've seen, there's about maybe like nine or 10 in my local market that I essentially part of easily. There's two that are the biggest. And then one that is fortunately in my market, the biggest that I deal with is also the most user friendly. You know, if you had to like put yourself in a position, I mean, you can have different outlines and different ways to display something, but ultimately it needs to be visual. I find it needs to be visual and easy to hover over and move around very quickly. So if you're in an MLS system, that's like archaic in in its data or or the way it displays, like, but only displays in maybe a list of properties and you can't visually see it on a map, that kind of stuff makes picking a value out difficult. So, you know, mine's very user-friendly and I'm very appreciative of being in that. So I would say if people are looking, first thing, do yourself a favor and get comfortable with your MLS system locally. Every area will have their own MLS system that they...
1: Sure. Yeah. so. So help us to think like a lender. You know, what should we be thinking about? And, you know, what, what does that need to look like? Or maybe ways that we wouldn't even know that things that they're thinking of.
0: So a lender, you know, a private lender, I can't speak from a bank's perspective. because most, If you go to a bank, nothing wrong with banks. Banks are fantastic. But usually when you go to a bank, you're being under as a borrower. So the bank is really, we're all asking how much are we risking? We're all saying risk, mm-hmm. risk, risk, risk. That's all we're concerned with. We're not concerned with profit. We're concerned with risk. So minimizing risk is what our game is about. To go to a bank; they're going to offset their risk with you being a borrower, or like you know what your skill set is in terms of credit score, tax returns, all that kind of stuff. They don't really know much about the asset. True private lenders are going to be focused on the asset. So the way I, as a lender, if you want to think like a lender, and I really feel like flippers should think this way, commercial guys that are you know retail or commercial guys should think this way, because if you think this way first, it's all gravy for you. You know, if you think then you know what the upside is. So I'm always thinking, how much can I lose? Like if you die tomorrow, you buy my deal, you die tomorrow, where am I? And then 30 days in, if I give you construction money and you botch it all up, or you just fly to the Bahamas and disappear, where where am I? Constantly thinking throughout the entire project, day one to day 90 to, you know, to close essentially, or to, until it closes out. Where are we in terms of, you know, how exposed am I on this project? Assuming that you do nothing right. Now I have some fantastic clients that are exceptional executors of what they do, and there's never an issue. But if you're on the other side of this, you should be thinking, okay, if tomorrow my entire, you know, if I'm flipping the house, let's just say, if my entire crew leaves me, how much is that going to set me back in holding costs tomorrow? If everybody leaves my number one crew, boom, guy gets arrested, goes to jail contractors it happens, right? So if that happens tomorrow, where am I? Okay, can I afford another $5,000 in holding costs? On this project? Will I find another GC? Is that built in here? Is there a 10 or 15% buffer that I've built in? So if you walk yourself through all the what ifs that can go wrong, because everybody, what I've noticed is they come in thinking everything is going to go right the entire time. Every contractor is going to get paid the exact right amount that I budgeted every this, every wall I open up is going to be, nothing's going to be back there. You know, Every tenant that I lease for is exactly going to be this much money. When the reality is it never goes that clean. So You really want to be buffering all the time and then go, okay, I do all these worst case scenarios. Am I still left with a good profit at the end? And if you go, yeah, I've checked every box and I can't lose here. You probably then bought it for the right price and you probably budgeted the right amount. Don't trick yourself to thinking it's going to go smoother than it is.
1: Hi, Whitney here with an important question. What if everything you've been taught about raising capital was actually entirely wrong? What if there was a better, faster, and more reliable way with lots of proof to support it? Well, there is. And on a special and totally free online training that I and a special colleague of mine will provide to you this week, you'll see just what that better, faster, and more reliable way is and why the guy who created the system is rapidly becoming known as the fixer for other big name capital raise experts when their methods run out of time, money, and results to get your spot on this week's very special free training just go right now to the website persuasion.fm that's persuasion.fm yes it's not a normal .com website name just like you'll learn later this week it's radically different from everything you've been taught go to persuasion.fm right now and reserve your free spot I like how you say it, you know you want to be buffering all the time you don't know what's behind those walls and you say you know we say okay we're going to renovate this many units or this is the way it's going to work out but you know like there's a heavy heavy rehab we were looking at on a property it was nearly 300 units and you know we expected obviously massive turnovers but we were going to vacate a building or two buildings at a time and do massive renovations but there's times where we were underwriting like a 50 percent vacancy just in case Mm -hmm. You know, just in case we were just planning on two buildings at a time, but we know that there'll be more than that, you know, over, over the first probably year. And so, yeah, I I appreciate that. And also I thought you could elaborate on how you, before we even started recording, I think you were talking about how you're an investor first.
0: Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm a little different as in the lending space. So the lending space is traditionally, you know, probably went to school, got your MBA, you come out. You're not wearing a hoodie, you know, like, like it's just not how it is. You probably have a tie and a button down and so forth. You're a finance guy. You sit behind a desk and you swing a pen. Not how I'm built and not how our company is built. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. There's that's just a different space. It's just less, I don't know. I'm an investor in the way that I believe that there are invest through investing to real estate investing doesn't judge by color, background, or anything. It judges by can you analyze a deal and protect your money? So that is kind of where I came from. So I did a lot of real estate investing prior to becoming a private lender, but in my heart, in like the cloth that I'm, that I'm made of is, you know, I don't relate as well to a banker, even though people will consider me a banker as I do other investors. It's just, I speak the language of investing with, you know, real estate investors rather than caring what your debt to income is or stuff like that is just not relevant to me. So that was why I would be considered an investor first to what most people would consider maybe a banker first.
1: And there's a few questions before we run out of time, but how do you prepare for a potential downturn?
0: Yeah. Going back to being a private lender, the downturn is the ultimate, right? That That's the cycle risk. I'm always saying what could go wrong, what could go wrong, what could go wrong. So always like going, okay, the downturn's around the corner, it's around the corner. I guess the things I could look at with that right now are, and I always, I actually do a lot of I interview people locally in my market similar to what you do, but that is a question I ask a lot of the bigger players as well, because I'd like to actually get a pulse and a feel from what they're doing. It's a really good question, especially ones that have been through multiple cycles, because you need to know how they survived it and why they survived it. And, you know, preparing for the downturn, I don't know that it's so much preparing or doing anything different as being aware of it, because, nobody can time it perfectly the only person that time says they timed it perfectly is when they make the movie the big short right and it look back and oh he was so smart he was a genius there's a million other guys predicting other things It didn't work out he looks like a genius because that's the one that worked out and it played out because they put a bunch of money into it great you know it worked out i don't wait around kind of you know saying okay it's here it's you know or it's coming it's coming it's coming in my head and then like changing my business along the way i'm always thinking it's coming i'm always thinking this doesn't make sense now 2008 you know a couple of things we have going money's flowing pretty well too well right now people have money that shouldn't have money right now meaning that the mar- they think they're smarter than the market and that's when the market comes and gets you so we're closer to a top than a bottom i believe that so you know how do i change or how do i how do i adapt my business to that honestly i look at it and go i've been underwriting the same way i have forever and that means i was close to the bottom of a market when i was underwriting to begin with and i haven't changed my stipulations or guidelines i haven't gotten looser so i'm essentially saying i'm battle tested at the bottom of a market in my mind and prepared for that again you know because it will come it doesn't get to do what it's continuing to do and i also don't think it's going to happen in the same way it did last time i think the scars are too fresh with people from 2008 that they are a little bit too aware in the real estate market that so what i don't think will happen is it won't double down against real estate again last time the catalyst was real estate itself and the mortgage backed industry and the derivatives and so forth it was like tied together whereas I think we're going to be looking at a scenario where it's going to be something where the world is connected. It will have to be able to impact the entire world, but it won't be in real estate. It will just affect real estate like it affects the rest of the world, be it like currencies, be it like whatever. You know, It could be something that is just not tied to real estate because the people in real estate are still a little too scarred to get caught with their pants down again in that same spot.
1: What's a way that you've recently improved your business that we could apply to ours?
0: I'd say it never hurts to go back over what you're good at and make sure you're doing continuing to do that. So a lot of times when you're growing a business, different businesses along the years, there's two things I would suggest to somebody is one, be very clear about like the departments or the pigeonholes in your business and make sure everybody else in the business is aware of it. I see a lot with small businesses, especially in real estate, where people wear a lot of hats. That's not a good idea. That makes a business very confusing and not scalable. The second thing I would recommend is to make sure that you're in a position where you know, you got, if, if you're doing well or you're, you're happy with where your business is going, don't lose sight of what got you there to begin with. So it's a good refresher every, I don't know, so many years to go back. And we're kind of doing this right now in our business, just reiterating like why we're good at what we do. And let's not lose sight of that. Cause you, if you stray too far from what already made you work and it's easier said than done because there are all these new things that come up and fun stuff you can do, but don't lose sight of your core reasons that got you to where you are and the strengths that put you in that position and then grow upon those strengths, as opposed to trying to fight, you know, and make your weaknesses that much stronger. Like you can hire people that are better at weaknesses than you can, if you are naturally good at something, build on your strengths that have gotten you to this point already. Mm, I like that. And how do you give back? So culmination of things, I do certain things in my personal life that, you know, uh, along every, every so often certain things strike me from a turkey drive to a, you know several years ago I ran a marathon for you know raise money for a girl that's dying of cancer so you know anything in there in terms of my personal life business wise you know I know what it's like to be in the real estate market and like trying to make your way I talk to a lot of new you know new investors every day trying to figure it out and trying to all that kind of stuff so I usually spend a lot of times honestly on making sure daily that I give back to people on like forums or message boards that you know where I started I started on those years ago and that's how I started to cut my way and like you know maybe that one piece of information I could give to somebody could really help them. And then I selfishly and selflessly, you know, do these kind of presentations where I know a, you know, it's good for me. It's good for you in terms of marketing and, and so forth, but it's also very good because this could be helping somebody. So it's like a win-win for me to say, Hey, you know, I'm winning, you're winning. And if this information really could like trigger somebody, And I get calls from these all the time, you know, Hey, I saw your video or I saw your podcast or, and I learned this, or I did this. And I'm like, great. That one step closer to where you're trying to go. That feels good for me.
1: It's awesome I appreciate you sharing that, and it's so true. I hope the listeners gain a lot from the show and, and will most importantly, take some action from it, right? If you just listen and yeah. you don't it's kind of like overanalyzing you know, or overcomplicating it. If you don't actually take some action, though, you're not ever going to be able to improve and get where you're going. But most importantly, right now, tell them how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you.
0: Sure, I keep it really simple. It's hardmoneybankers.com Ian, so my first name is just IAN at hardMoneybankers with an S
1: So head over to lifebridgecapital.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with me, sign up on the contact us page so you can talk to me directly. Have a blessed
0: day and I will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital